0: Our session this morning is we're continuing in the doctrine of sin and we're going to talk about the issue of original sin. So another very easy and non-controversial subject, so it should be good. All right, well, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer and we'll dive in this morning. Our great, glorious God, we praise you this morning. You are worthy of praise. You are perfect in every aspect of your nature. You are the only one who is worthy of worship, worthy of praise, and we owe you doubly, both as your creatures and as your redeemed people. We thank you for giving us to Christ and him to us. We thank you for his redeeming work, his atoning death and resurrection. Uh, We thank you for his Uh, constant intercession for us at your right hand, how we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. We thank you as well, Lord, for the blessing of church fellowship through all of our sin and weaknesses, our failures. uh, We know that you have ordained that we would comfort and encourage one another by the Holy Spirit in the bonds of the New Covenant, and we thank you for these weekly gatherings And ask that you would please be with us, even starting now, to bless us with mutual encouragement, instruction, challenge, correction where need be, and that we would be built up in our faith and moved to greater knowledge of Christ and greater love for Him, and that our lives would increasingly glorify you. And so we pray that even now as we study this uh, teaching of your word, that you would open up our minds by the illumination of the spirit to understand and to accept what your word says on this important matter. And we pray it uh, for our good and for your glory. Amen. Amen. All right. So original sin. I want to introduce you to this fellow really quick. Uh, Anyone recognize who that is? Dennis Prager. Prager. So I I mean, I'm not (laughs) advocating Dennis Prager and everything he says, he has some some things that I really agree with, but I was just, I just happened to be listening to an interview with him the other day, and I heard him say something that I wanted to bring up. Uh, I found a quote that's similar to what I heard him say. Uh, He's obviously a conservative Jewish intellectual, so not a Christian, but he has to deal with liberal rabbis, just like we in the Christian church have to deal with liberal pastors and uh, professors, etc., And he was dealing with the issue of the fact that many liberal rabbis argue that human nature is basically good, that people are basically good. And he said this, This is one of the most foolish and dangerous ideas of the secular world. No Abrahamic religion, not Judaism, not Christianity, not Islam asserts that people are basically good. This notion is a product of the secular age and a major reason for the moral confusion that characterizes our era. And I I would say that, you know, even though he's a Jew, he's not a Christian, he's recognizing something very important. That the idea that we could come out the other side of the 20th century, for instance, and determine that man is basically good, that human nature is basically good, is not only the height of folly, but also so, so dangerous. Because it's only when we realize that man is not good that we recognize the need for restraint, of human evil, and, uh, and that is what preserves human society. So, with that provocative uh, statement, I want to assert that people are basically bad. I don't like that. Yeah, Yeah, welcome to the class, Phil. People are basically bad. Not good, right? And in some ways, I would just argue that this is patently obvious, All you have to do is look at the history of humanity. I mean, anyone who's objectively looking at human history is not going to come away saying, Oh yeah, people are basically good. Yeah, there's a few bad things that happen now and then, a few bad apples in the group. No, we're going to see that mankind has proven pervasively bad. Now, one of our problems in a secular age is we can't talk about good and evil because we don't believe that there is a God and therefore no objective moral standard but but you know even secular people you know looking at for instance, what happened in Israel not long back are going to say like President Biden did rightly say is pure evil right so even even in the face of that, at least he was willing to say that it was evil uh, but men human history, or raising children. Anyone who raises children knows that. Children need restraint, because they need correction. They need need discipline. Because if you don't, if you just say, well, I think that my child is basically good at nature, and if we just sort of raise them as free-range kids... (laughs) <laughs> they're going to they're going to come out right. All we got to do is protect them from bad influences. Well, I don't care if you have if you keep your kid in an isolated environment with no outside human in- influences, you're going to see real quick that they're not basically good. Left to their own devices, they will do bad things and hurt and harm, right? And that's just not out there. That's all of us, right? And that leads to the third thing that An honest evaluation of our own hearts, right? Now, people, we can be self-deceived about our hearts and rationalize away all of the wickedness. But if we are honest, I would say that how many of you want someone to look into your heart and see everything that you think and feel, every thought that pops into your head, every envious desire, every proud motivation, selfishness that goes on in your heart every day, no one would want everyone to see that. And, and what you begin to see, if you're honestly evaluating your own heart, is that, yeah, even as Christians, we're still sinners, and that sinful thoughts and desires, or we could use a more provocative word, wicked thoughts and desires, motivations, naturally arise in our hearts. In other words, we don't have to do anything to bring that about. <laughs> It naturally occurs. And instead, we have to, as the Bible would say, renounce ungodliness and worldliness, na- lust, put to death the deeds of the flesh. So there's a battle going on precisely because uh, man's nature is corrupted. And, and so, history anyone who's raised children or anyone who does an honest evaluation of their own hearts recognizes that, yeah, people are basically bad. It's obvious. It's also biblical, isn't it? Let me just point to you a few texts. I mean, I could enumerate many, many texts of Scripture. Which, by the way, you could also just step back and read the whole storyline of the Bible. If you read the whole storyline of the Bible, do you come away saying, Man, on the whole, it's basically good. No. You come away with, Wow, if the Bible is accurate, we're way worse than we even thought, right? But, let's just take a few texts. Could I get someone to read Genesis 6-5 who, who would volunteer? All right, uh, Je- uh, Jeremiah 17-9. Would someone volunteer to re- read that, Paul? Uh, and Ephesians 2-3. Ephesians 2-3. Someone volunteer to re- read that, Steve. Okay, so this is just a sampling. And in each case, you'll see that I've chosen texts that speak very generally of humanity. Okay, Not of particular people. But of mankind in general. So let's start with Genesis six five. Genesis six five. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Alright, so this is God looking down on humanity at the time of the flood and seeing that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth. Not man was generally good, but there were a few bad apples. No, and and not just outwardly wicked, such that you could say, well, you know, the badness of man is just a result of bad influences in their life. No, it, it's starting in the heart. The intention of the heart is evil continually. Okay, Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand? Yeah, and notice here that. It says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. This is why, you know, you ask yourself, how could people look at the 20th century, look back on the 20th century, right? With all of the carnage of World War I, World War II, the genocides in various parts of the world, uh, including uh, Cambodia, and, you know, tens of millions of people slaughtered at the hands of state-sponsored tyranny in China and in the Soviet Union, all of the evil of man in the 20th century, the Holocaust, and come out the other side of it and dare to say that man is basically good. How could we say that? Because the heart is deceitful above all things, right? Because we act selfishly and say, well, yeah, that's not really who I am. I, I was, I don't know why I did that. I know why we did that. Because that is who we are. Right? Right. Okay, so what's the last one? Ephesians 2 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, once again, it's like we none of us can escape this passage, right? Because Paul's speaking to us as Christians and saying, we all once were this way. He talks about our nature, our flesh, and that its passions, its desires, were wicked, such that we were by nature children of wrath. What that means is that we were by nature people who did what deserved God's wrath. Again, these are not pleasant. And you can understand why people would kick against them and say, well, that may be true of some people out there, but, and you know it really this is the way we operate we look out at the world we get mad at people who do things out there but we forget that of the things that we do the same things that we do on a smaller scale to our neighbor to our wife to our kids to our people in our that live next door to us etc etc the judgmental thoughts the bitterness the envy the sinful anger on and on right the selfishness the pride you know i remember i think it was ted tripp and he was talking about selfishness and child in his child rearing series and he was talking about one day that he went downstairs and his wife and him would usually sit up and read together in their room or do something and he went downstairs to get his wife and he uh, a bowl of ice cream i don't know if you guys remember ever heard this illustration you know, doing a nice thing for his wife and carrying the two bowls up, and as he's carrying the two bowls, he said he found himself in his mind, kind of weighing the two bowls, see which was which had more ice cream in it, and his plan, his intention was to give the, uh, you know, the bowl with less ice cream to his wife, you know she'll never know, you know and then he's like, what is going on, you know, this is the, the depth of, this is what happens naturally to us, right by nature, Yeah, I mean, we've never, I know that's kind of an abstract, like (laughs) disconnected from reality, but (laughs) all right. So people are basically bad and that, and that leads us to the question of why, why are people basically bad? Right. And this is an important question because one of the reasons why people struggle with this and reject this idea that people are basically bad is because they say, well, how could it be our fault if we're, If this is our nature and people struggle with this, they say, if we're born this way, if this is how we are by nature, how could we be held accountable for? How could this be bad if it comes naturally to us? The assumption is that nature is good. If it's natural, it's good. But we have to realize that from a biblical perspective, that's not true. But we do have to answer the question of why is it that we are bad? Why are people basically bad and not basically good, as you would intuitively think? And the answer is not that God made us this way. Of course, there is a sense in which each one of us is, is a creature of God, woven together in our mother's womb. But the, but the point is, is that mankind was not created by God originally as bad. God did not originally create man as bad. Rather, God originally created man as good. So this is the, you, you guys know that verse. Does anyone know that verse by heart, Genesis 1.31? Maybe not. He looked on all that he had made. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And by the way, was man created by this point when he said that? Yeah. He created man, Genesis 1.26-28, talks about the creation of man, how he put him in the garden, how he gave him the commission to fill the earth and multiply, take dominion over it. So after the creation of man, he looks on everything that he made and said, It's very good. Would God have done that if we, if man was then as he is now? No, he couldn't. He couldn't have done that, right? Something happened between Genesis 1, 31, and Genesis 6, when he says, when it says the Lord looked. And saw that the every intention of man was only evil continually. And the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Something has happened, right? This is not, Genesis 6 is not how God originally made man in the beginning. In the beginning, he made man, he could look down upon man and all that he had made, and he could say it was very good. Right? So why then are people basically bad? Because the first man, Adam, broke God's command in the beginning, and this started the whole thing, right? So if you look at Genesis 2, 16 and 17, you see the command. When the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. There's his goodness, right? He's not withholding anything from man. like He's not withholding any good thing. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So he sets one boundary for man. Not to eat of one tree. He can eat all the other trees, but not one. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then we know what happens. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we see, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then, if you go down to verse 11, you see God confronting them in the garden, seeking them out in His mercy, confronting them. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? So there is a explicit transgression here. Remember, there was sin that arose in the heart of Adam and Eve prior to the act of eating. But the act of eating was the explicit transgression transgression of the command right This was the original sin where he got where Adam broke God's law. And what we see as the storyline of the Bible unfolds and made explicit in the New Testament is that the consequences of Adam's first transgression were inherited by all his descendants because he was their head and representative. Now, there's a sense in which you could read on from Genesis 3 and you could see that the consequences of Adam's first sin were passed on to his descendants. If you're reading and you read from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4, how do you know that something has happened to not just Adam and Eve, but to their children, to their children, to their children? How do you know Genesis three, 4, Genesis 5... How do you begin to see that the effects of Adam's sin have been passed on to his progeny, his descendants? Cain and Abel, right? There's jealousy, there's corruption of nature. God even tells Cain, sin is crouching at your door, wants to master you, wants to rule over you. His countenance is down, he hates his brother, he's jealous of his brother. What else? What about Genesis chapter 5? What is in Genesis 5? And what do you see? Death. And then he died. And then he died. And then he died. And where where did you first hear that mention of death? In Genesis. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So, it wasn't just Adam that suffered the consequence, was it? It was all of his progeny. First, they were all sinners. Second, they were all condemned to death. So you see that even from the storyline of of Genesis, right, you see immediately that what Adam has done has not just affected him. It has affected all of his progeny. And the story doesn't change as you read through the Bible, right? It's not like you get past, you know, some of these first guys and then we go back to being good again. No, it just gets worse and worse. Contreras. I couldn't one argue that the original disobedience from Adam and Eve is that natural and evil, you know, that part because they chose to rebel. That rebelling is turning away. So if they had been created good. God didn't make them bad. But he did put within them the ability to make a choice. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, When it comes to Adam and Eve, he created them good. But he created them able to do bad. And then they chose to do bad. But what I would say is that things changed after Adam. So in other words, Cain and Abel were not created good like Adam were. Right? So, that everyone born after Adam was born a sinner subject to death, which means they were a guilty sinner. And therefore, you see that Adam's original sin, Adam's first sin, his first transgression, uh, the consequences of that were passed down to his progeny. So that there's a sense in which they didn't have the same choice that Adam did. And that's why I say... Why? Why would what he did count for them? And this is where, I think, if we go to Romans 5, we begin to see this articulated more explicitly. Chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And then as you read through, you see this parallelism between the first man, the one man, Adam, and the one man, Jesus Christ. And you realize that there's a special relationship between Adam and those who were his descendants. And there is a special relationship between Jesus, who is like a second Adam. In fact, Paul actually makes it explicit that there was a typological relationship. Verse fourteen, Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, so Adam was like Jesus. Jesus was greater than Adam, but there are certain things about Adam that prefigured and pointed forward to Jesus. And in this context, you see that there, what was one of the things that is that there makes them like is that they both represented a larger group, and what they did counted for those they represented. Adam's disobedience led to unrighteousness and death for those he represented. And who did he represent? All mankind. Jesus' obedience led to righteousness and life for those he represented. Identified as the many in the passage, or we would argue it's all those who believe in him. I mean, after all, that's the whole point he's been making in the first three chapters, justified by faith. So that you could say that there is a covenantal relationship. Adam is the head of humanity, uh, the covenant head. He represented them. He acted on their behalf. What he did counted for them. Just like Jesus is the covenant head of a new humanity the new covenant people of god and what he did he represented them what he did counted for them you guys recognize that language counted to does that pop up in romans that's that language of justification that you're declared it's something is credited to you a legal standing is credited to you or counted to you and so what jesus did is credited to us and what adam did was credited to us such that we were born having inherited his, the consequences of his sin. There's a, a faint echo in our own democratic system, right? We elect uh, a representative and they go to Washington and what they do counts for us because they, they represent us. And sometimes we like what they do and sometimes we don't, right? But, but we deal with that all the time. Well, God arranged a similar... Not exactly the same, but a similar arrangement. Adam was our representative. What he did counted for us. That's why we could say, in a sense, we shared in his guilt. When he sinned, we sinned because we were in him as his progeny. Yeah, Marcus. Did you say there's something similar with like, other governments that we in the Old Testament, like the Pharaoh, kind of like the punishment on him is right. punishment on the Egyptians or down Babylon? Yeah, and what you're what you're describing there is you're seeing in the Old Testament world this type of relationship, that's not uncommon at all. There was a sort of collective identity where you'd have one representing and acting on behalf of the whole. In fact, in a in a little bit of a different way, you remember the story of Achan, right? Even one man in the covenant community sinned and it brought judgment on the whole. Okay. Well, let's uh Let me just make one more point here. What you could say is this dreadful inheritance, the consequences of Adam's first transgression being inherited by us, his descendants, this dreadful inheritance is what has been called original sin. And all mankind is born with it. Except one, right? Which, this is the significance of the virgin birth of Christ. The lineage is broken with Christ. He is born of a woman so that he's truly man, but he's not, he doesn't have a human father, does he? It says that he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, and this is why he is called the Son of God. And he is holy. So he doesn't inherit original sin. And the virgin birth is meant to communicate that. He's a son of Adam in his humanity, but not a son of Adam with respect to the inheritance of original sin. Alright. So, the question remains though is, we say, original sin, what is it? Well, it refers to what we inherit from Adam. We inherit the consequences of Adam's first transgression, because he acted as our representative. And what we inherit from Adam is what we call original sin. But that still begs the question, well, what exactly is it that we do inherit from Adam? What are the consequences of Adam's transgression that we inherit? And I, I just wanted to refer to one of the Protestant confessions, the, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, which was written in 1689 for those Protestants in England who identified as Baptistic They were wanting to tie themselves into the Reformed tradition, and so they wrote this confession that was distinctly Baptist, but it shared much language with the Westminster Confession, because they're wanting to say, look, we agree with you on most things, but we disagree with you on certain things. So they took much of the language of the Westminster Confession, which was the Presbyterian's Confession, and they adapted it, uh, changing some to articulate reflect their Baptist conviction. So this is a reformed confession, and it says it has a section uh, in chapter six, which is titled "Of the Fall of Man, of Sin, and of the Punishment thereof." Paragraph three articulates this issue of original sin, and it says our first parents being the root. And by God's appointment, standing in the room and stead of all mankind, in other words, being their representatives, the guilt of the sin, of their first sin, was imputed. So that's the idea of illegal crediting, crediting to our account. The guilt of their sin was imputed. It was credited to the account of all mankind. And... "...the corrupted nature conveyed or passed on to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin, and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free." So that's, I think, a good description of what exactly is original sin. In other words, what is this ugly, dreadful inheritance that we have received from our forefather Adam, our head and representative? Well, those two phrases there, the guilt of sin was imputed and the corrupted nature conveyed. So I want to take those two phrases and I want to unpack them a bit. The guilt of sin was imputed. Okay, So first, the guilt, and with guilt comes punishment, right? So the guilt and its ensuing punishment, for Adam's first transgression was imputed, was credited to all mankind whom he represented. So all mankind are born with this inheritance, with They're born with Adam's guilt and its punishment. So they are born guilty and under the sentence of death because of Adam's first transgression. And I I want to show you this connection. You say, Why am I sentenced? Why am I guilty and sentenced to death? And you would be tempted to say, Because of my sin. And you would be right. You're guilty. You're sentenced to death because of your sin. Because. Your sin is worthy of guilt, condemnation, and death. But is that the whole story? No, it's not the whole story. You are also, and firstly guilty of Adam's sin. You inherit his guilt and the penalty of death. And this is where Romans 5 is the key, one of the key texts. Because it keeps saying that we are condemned and under the sentence of death, because of Adam's sin. Now, we could add because of our sins, too. In other words, if there's a pile, you have Adam's sin down here. And that already makes us guilty and subject to death. But then we add to the pile, right? But let's read. Let's read all the way through from verse 12 through uh, 19. Because... This is one of the key texts, and I just want you to see it. So I want you to look as we read for the language which connects Adam's transgression with our condemnation and our death. Condemnation is just another way of saying guilty. Condemned. Guilty. It's a legal verdict. So let's look here. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because, you see it here, for if because of one man's trespass death reigned, through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, and there I think in the context, you would be tempted to say that that's a re- reference to their sinful nature. But I, I think in the context, it's all about these legal standings, condemnation or justification, and the consequences of death. So I think when he says, Through the one man's, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That is, they were made, in their legal status, guilty of sin. So, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous, declared righteous. So, if we just stop there, you have seen it, couldn't have been more clear, right? He said it in every way possible, that there in this ultimate sense, in this original sense, if you ask the question, why are we condemned? Why are we in a state of unrighteousness, why are we under the reign of death? The answer, in its ultimate sense, is because through the one man's sin, through, because of one, his original trespass. That's what led to our condemnation. Now, there is so much to say about this passage I could spend literally... You know, I could sit here three, four, five sessions walking through this text and unpacking all of the different exegetical questions. But I think if you just step back, you see this main point, right? That Paul is saying. There's this relationship between Adam and those who he represented. And his first trespass, his first sin, led to condemnation, guilt, and death, which is the penalty for sin, whereas... On the other hand, we also have Christ and all those whom he represented. His obedience led to their righteousness and life. The reward of righteousness is life. And so it's it's extremely important that we see this. He's not denying that we also sin and add to our guilt and merit even further. But he's saying he's describing the relationship between Adam and... And his progeny, mankind, and Jesus and his descendants, as it were, those who he represents. So, all mankind are born in this state because their guilt and the penalty of death originate with Adam. And so you say, well, how could God hold me accountable for what comes naturally to me, you know? (laughs) Because we would have done that too if we were Adam. Right, but even more importantly, in this sense, he's saying because we were, are being held responsible for Adam's sin because he represented us. What he did counted for us. We inherit his guilt, condemnation, and its penalty, death. So you say, what is original sin? Original sin is inherited guilt, at least in part. And we'll talk about there's something else as well. So this is the language of the confession. The guilt of sin was imputed. Any questions about that? Yeah, Marcus. How would you answer, How would you answer someone who says, but that's not fair? Right. Yeah. I'm, so, I think there's a couple things to say. One is that, well, I always start with these, that's not fair, right? With saying, that assumes that we can put God up on the witness stand and judge Him by our standards of justice, right? And we have to step back and say, immediately, we can say, well, I don't understand how that is just. But we can't say, we can't legitimately say to God, that's not fair. Because He's not subject to our standards of fairness. And we're just humans, specks, And we're sinful, so we should assume that our standards are going to be corrupted and our ability to judge what's right and just is going to be suspect, right? So that's where I'd start. Secondly, I would say, what's unfair about it? If God wants to establish an arrangement where we have a representative, Adam, and what he does counts for us, well, we might not (laughs) like that. But there's nothing necessarily unfair about it. Because that's the arrangement God's established, that he, this person represents us. And we understand being represented by someone who doesn't do well for us, right? <laughs> uh, but, that's not, but, but we don't say, but that's not fair. We say we don't like it, that our representative is acting poorly on our behalf, and we're suffering the consequences. But it's an arrangement that's not inherently unfair, And we know it's not, because God did it, right? (laughs) But we also could say this, that if you're going to say it was unfair that what Adam did counted for us, what do we also have to say is unfair? Unfairly, unfair that Christ, what Christ did. Yeah, that if we don't like having Adam as our representative, because we don't think it's fair that what he did counted for us, then we would also have to forfeit the right to have Jesus as our representative, and that what he did counted for us. So we like saying, we like the gospel which says... That Jesus' obedience was credited to our account, so that even though we are sinners, we are justified because of what he did for us. So if, if we don't like the arrangement that God has set up with Adam, the first Adam, then we would have to protest at the second arrangement. And by the way, what would be the only alternative to that? That we each stand or fall based upon our own merits, right? I don't like that arrangement. Let's go back, right? <laughs> Let's go back to God's. I think that's better. So uh, that's how I would answer it, Marcus. I mean, it isn't an easy question in the sense that there is an element of mystery that it stretches our, as sin, especially sinners, sinful human beings, we don't always fully understand the ways of God. Does that make sense, uh, Marcus? Okay. Yeah, Katrina. So often when we look at something that's fair or unfair, we're not looking at the whole picture. Right. And so taking just the fact that we are in, inherited the guilt, if you just look at that picture, like you said, it, it may appear to be unfair, but you have to add the second half, like you were saying. Right. You know, so you've got to look at the whole picture. Right. Yeah, I mean, my kids think it's unfair that... I don't get them a phone when all their kid all their friends have a phone. And why do they think that's unfair? Well, there's all kinds of layers to that. One is that they think they're owed a phone. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> that's obviously not true. B, they think it's, you know, they have this standard that if all their friends have it, then they should have it too and it's not fair that they're deprived of something. But, you know, when you begin to peel back the layers here, you see that the the problem here is not so much with the arrangement. The problem is with the immaturity, the lack of understanding of the child, right? Mm-hmm. And I would just say that the same is true of us with God, that we, we're we like less than little children. I mean, my child is a human being, and I'm a human being. But God is God, and I'm a, I'm a human being. I, mm-hmm. I should expect that I would understand even less of the full ways of this majest, majestic God who's created the heavens and the earth then my child understands my ways, right? So, there are certain things that we say to our children. I know you don't understand this. I know you think it's unfair. But you're going to you're gonna have to obey and you're going to have to trust me. And in the long run, you know, sometimes your children will come back and say, Oh, Dad, thank you if so much. You know, I finally did get a phone and I realized how difficult it is. And I thank you for, you know. <laughs> but, or they may not do that. <laughs> but... <laughs> But, like, this is how it is with God. Like, has He proven His character to us? Absolutely. You know, we're going to look back and go, we're not going to be questioning. Well, I don't know about that arrangement, God. Okay, second. The second phrase in the confession was, and corrupted nature conveyed. So it's not just the guilt of Adam's first sin, condemnation, It's also, and death. It's also the corrupt nature. And this is a little bit more tricky because... There's not exactly a text which says explicitly that Adam's corrupt nature is passed on to his progeny. It's more like obvious from the biblical storyline, like we we're saying, you know, you read on to Genesis 4 and 5 and 6. But it is evident from the Bible implicitly that the moral and physical corruption of Adam's nature, which occurred because of his first transgression. By the way, how do you know that even within the text of Genesis 3, something has happened to Adam's nature? Do you remember when, At, when God seeks Adam out in the garden and he says, have you eaten? Do you remember what he does? Hiding. The woman. He's hiding, so there's shame. He says, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. And then what does the woman do? The serpent, you know. And immediately you see, something has changed in their hearts, Right? And then you see that they die. And so you see that the physical corruption and the moral corruption that occurred in Adam and Eve as a result of their sin is passed down to their progeny. That's to all of us who are their descendants. So all mankind are born with bodies that are subject to physical corruption. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, the the outer man is wasting away. And we all say, Amen. (laughs) Unless we're a young kid, then we think we're invincible, right? But but, um, we we recognize that our bodies are subject to corruption. That even from the moment we were born, there's a sense in which we say, we begin to die. And then our souls are also, we are born with bodies that are subject to physical corruption, and our souls are subject to moral corruption. Let me, let me read some... Let, let's read some verses together. So, um, who would volunteer to read Genesis 8.21? Someone volunteer to read Genesis 8.21? Okay, Phil. Uh, Psalm 51.5? Okay, Quinn. Psalm 58.3? Okay, Craig. Proverbs 22.15? Someone volunteer for that? Okay. Romans 7.18. Okay, Isaiah. Titus 1.15. Okay, Paul. Okay, let's let's go through these, and, I, and I'm going to point out different things from these texts. This Again, this is just a sampling. I mean, I could enumerate many verses for you, and in a sense, the whole storyline of the Bible testifies to this inherited corruption, that we have inherited Adam's corruption, such that we're born with it. And again, we could also say it's obvious... From just history and raising children and our own, our own natures, our own hearts, looking at our own hearts. But we'll see it in the scriptures here. So, let's start with Genesis 8.21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Okay, so then you, there you see in that verse, that phrase, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, right? So there's a description of moral corruption of human nature, and it's man in general, right? <clears throat> Mankind. Because this is to do with the flood, and the reason for the flood. And it traces it back to his youth. Now, he doesn't say explicitly from his being a baby, but he's just saying from, from early on in his life, you see the evil intention of his heart. Okay, uh, Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So this is in that one of the famous psalms of confession by David. He's reflecting upon his own sinfulness, and he says, look, I was born in iniquity, <laughs> and in sin did my mother conceive me. And he's not saying that my mother conceived me through sin, because as far as we know, that wasn't the case. She was married to Jesse in the context of marriage. They had David. But, but he's saying rather that from his birth, he was a sinner. All right, Psalm 58.3. The wicked are strange from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Okay, so when he says the wicked here, first of all, let's establish, who's he talking about? People that are especially bad? <laughs> Who would be the opposite of the wicked? The righteous. But what defines who is the righteous? Well, there is a righteousness of life and character, right? But that comes through the work of the Spirit, bringing new life, bringing regeneration. I mean, this is why a person changes, only by God's grace. So the wicked would be those apart from grace, right? He's talking about those Who do not have faith, who have not been regenerated by the Spirit, I think in the broader context of the Scriptures, we could say that. So in other words, this is man left to himself, and what does he say? They're estranged from the womb. Who do you think they're estranged from? From God, right? They go astray from birth, speaking lies. This is hard stuff, but then again, you know, as much as we love our children, we recognize there is an there is an element of innocence to them, and that they don't they get worse as they get bigger. You know, <laughs> we we do, but but nevertheless, I mean, you see it early on. You see the manifestation of going astray. In other words, children don't. Early on in life, just love the glory of God and seek that above all else. No, we don't. We're born estranged, going astray from birth. Okay, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. I can't skip that one. Right. I mean, we just we recognize this is common sense, right? Left to ourselves, our our children have fo- foolishness bound up in their hearts, right? It, they have a corrupt nature, and it's only through discipline that. They are corrected, at least in the level of their behavior, such that they do what is right. So it's just like we're watching in our society right now. There's an assumption that the reason people do bad things is because of bad social structures. And we would say that is just foolishness. You can have the best environment in the world and you let people run free without restraint and they're going to do bad things, right? (laughs) Human nature is corrupted. People need restraint. And that starts with children. Okay, uh, Romans 7.18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the working out of the good is not. So Paul is reflecting here, as a believer, I think, upon his sinful nature. That is, that part of him that he inherited from Adam, which is not yet redeemed, his flesh and he says, in that part of me nothing good dwells. Mm-hmm. Right? So that would mean if he wasn't born again, if he wasn't regenerated, he would only be flesh. Right? <laughs> there would be no competition. <laughs> there would be no part of him that loves God. He's speaking to his natural corruption. Titus 1.15 uh, Let's who has that? Got it. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Okay, so the key there is unbelieving. Apart from God's grace, apart from the regeneration of the Spirit, which grants us faith, left in our state of unbelief, we're defiled, and not just, we're defiled in our minds and our consciences, right? Okay one more text here, Ephesians four seventeen through 19. Let's read this. Paul is speaking, again, there's lots of passages I could go to, but let's just speak here. He's speaking of Gentiles. Now, A Gentile, it's funny because, were the Ephesians Jews or Gentiles? Predominantly. Gentiles, right? I mean, there were Jews in the congregation, but if you say the majority of the church, they're probably Gentiles. That is, according to the flesh, they were not Jews. But here he says to them, don't walk any longer as the Gentiles do. So Gentiles has to be seen in its covenantal as covenantal language, as those who are not the people of God. Those who are outside the covenant community. Unbelievers. And this is their condition. He says, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Code, as unbelievers do, as those who are outside the church. Which could be both Jew and Gentile, right? your old man, in the Greek it's anthropos, just old man, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the new man, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So the two mans would correspond to who? Adam, Christ, So, he's speaking here of the nature that you inherited from Adam, your old man. Put that off. Why? Because it's corrupt through deceitful desires. It naturally produces deceitful desires. Sensuality. Every kind of impurity. It naturally wants those things. And put on the new man. That is the nature that you inherited from Christ. That is a new creation, which is being renewed in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So, again... The Bible is just so clear, over and over, that by nature we are born with a, a nature that is corrupt. We so in, the original sin is inherited guilt and inherited corruption. Let me just uh, move through these last couple slides. Do you have to believe in original sin? This seems kind of obscure. It seems very controversial. As Marcus pointed out, it doesn't seem fair. I mean, I know that's not what you were saying, but you're just raising that question. What do you say if? Well, certain aspects of the doctrine of original sin have been debated by true Orthodox Christians, and especially the area of inherited guilt. So I'd be able to question, have we really been declared guilty by God for Adam's sin? Or is it that we just inherit his corruption and then we commit sin and we're guilty for our sin? I would say no, but Christians who are true Christians have debated these things. However, to deny original sin altogether and affirm instead that every man is born in a state of innocence, unaffected by Adam's sin, that is a position that has been condemned by the Church throughout its history as a heresy. And the heresy was famously advocated by a British monk named Pelagius, and it was refuted by St. Augustine. So, Pelagianism is what we call, have come to call, the heresy, in other words, this is a denial of the Christian faith, that Adam's sin didn't affect humanity, that each of us is born in a state of innocence, like Adam was, and we have the, we're not born guilty, we're not born sinful, but we fall through our own devices. And we just have to say, as attractive as that might be to us intellectually, that's just simply not what the bible teaches and it actually messes up the whole gospel if you do that plus it's obviously wrong because we are born sinners i also want to point out the other side of this at the very end of that statement from the london baptist confession that we looked at it says unless the lord jesus set them free and we need to realize here that jesus is described in 1 corinthians 15:45 as the last adam that He was the head and representative of a new humanity, and that consisted of all who believe in Him. So let me just read to you some of these verses just to give you a a little taste here. Ephesians 2, 15-16. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He, Jesus, might create in Himself one new man. It could be translated one new man humanity, in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So, Jesus is the second Adam, the last Adam. He creates, through His atoning work, a new humanity, who is reconciled to God through Him, both Jew and Gentile. And the righteousness of His perfect, obedient life is imputed to them, to this new humanity by faith. They receive it by faith. So again, imputation is legal language. It's the idea of crediting to you, putting something into your account, accounting it to you. So, even though you're not the one who lived the perfectly righteous life, Jesus was. His perfectly righteous life, his record of righteousness is put into your account. It becomes your like clothing before God, so that you stand before God righteous because of what Christ did. And again, you can say, Well, that's not fair. Well Yeah, if we got what was fair, we'd be in trouble. <laughs> it's not justice, it's mercy. That it, it's justice that Christ fulfilled the law, but it's mercy that his righteousness is credited to our account as a gift. Romans five nineteen says, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Not because of what you did, but because of what he did, the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And we should also say, just like Adam's sin was imputed to us, we could also say that The holiness of Jesus' human character is also being conveyed to this new humanity by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, right? So if we go back to that text that we read in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, look at the language. Put on the new self, the new man, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So Christ has not just forgiven us, secured our forgiveness, He's also secured our renewal. His own righteousness is being formed in us. Do you remember the language of Galatians chapter 4? Paul says in verse 19, My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Until you are conformed to the image of Christ. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So, just like Adam's guilt and punishment is imputed to us, just like his corruption is conveyed to us, so Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us, and his holy character is being conveyed to us by the Holy Spirit. All right, so any questions about that? All right. Uh, We're talking about children. I remember a pastor long ago said to me, a child will work tirelessly to make his parents do whatever he wants them to do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, isn't it? I mean, That's I think what happens, there's a lot of similarities between us as adults and us as children. It's the same sinful nature. We just become far more sophisticated in the way we do things, right? So a child, if they want to get you to do something, they might scream and cry. But as an adult, if we want to get someone to do something, we we develop more sophisticated ways of doing it. But it's the same stuff, isn't it? Yeah. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our time together studying this very important subject of what the Word says about original sin. Lord, it is sobering because we recognize that we're born sinners, subject to death because of what Adam did. But we thank you that this is wisdom from you because otherwise we can't understand the world. We can't understand why man is bad. Why we're born this way. And we might be so confused as to think that if we're born this way, then we can't be accountable for it. It can't be wrong. And yet, it is. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us this revelation of where, why this has happened and where it came from so that we might understand it and respond appropriately and Lord, we know that. It's actually so important that we understand this because it explains the gospel. Jesus is the second Adam. And we praise you and thank you that he has been righteous for us. That his obedience is credited to our account as a gift. And we simply trust in him instead of our own works. And we thank you that that by the Spirit, when we receive His righteousness, you also make us new. You regenerate our hearts and you begin conveying to us Christ's character so that we become more Christ-like in our character. And we thank you that one day we're hoping with a a certainty because you have promised it that you will raise us from the dead, not only forgiven and washed clean from our sins, but made new, uh, perfected, glorified, free from all corruption and every effect of Adam's sin. And we will be brought into it the ultimate promised land, the new creation, place where the curse will be gone. And creation itself, which groans now under its subjection to futility and corruption, will be set free and will become our eternal homeland. Oh Lord, we long for that day. Help us to live with an understanding of these things now Filled with gratitude and love for Christ, for who He is and what He's done for us, and with a great hope of the consummation of all these things in the age to come, we thank you. We pray it in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, thank you, guys.